Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you and encourage you to open it to uh, Acts chapter 1. Uh, this time of year is always exciting because, you know, everything gets geared up. And uh, for a church, all our ministries kind of get back into full swing and, and all of that stuff happens. Community groups and Bible studies and uh, kids ministry and youth ministry. Uh, those things all get kind of ratcheted up. But we always uh, launch a new series in the fall. And uh, this fall, we are launching a series in the book of Acts. Um, and just as I say that, um, we do, you know, in the past, we've produced some study guides and stuff for you to, you know, have questions and, and content in there. We're doing something a little bit th- different this time around. We just have some simple scripture journals. Um, and uh, this just contains the text of the book of Acts in it, as well as each page has a page of uh, a blank page where you can take notes. Uh, those are available for purchase at the Connect Desk. There's a black one. There's also a purpley one with some birds and flowers on it. So you decide what, uh, what suits you best, but you can find those at the Connect Desk. I think they're like 850 or something. Anyway, we are beginning this series today on the book of Acts. So let me just tell you how we landed here. Uh, when I began my sabbatical back in April, I had three ideas in mind of what I would like to preach on or thoughts that I might preach on. Um, one of those was I have preached halfway through the book of Genesis. We've gone up as far as chapter 25, and I thought about maybe returning to that and tackling that section that runs from chapter 26 to 36. It's taken up with the life of Jacob, and I thought about calling that series Straight Lines with Crooked Sticks. Because that's what you see there. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. You have a person like Jacob who is deceptive and there's, life is filled with this dysfunction and yet God called him and chose him and used him and God does that with people like us as well. So that was one idea. Second idea was to dive into the book of Romans. Uh, Romans is a theological masterpiece. It Uh, has so much to teach us, really tells us everything we need to know about sin and salvation, Uh, helps us understand the nature of God, the nature of our human condition, and what Jesus has done about it. I know one pastor who spent seven years preaching through the book of Romans, verse by verse, Sunday by Sunday, and at some point, by God's grace, I would like to teach through the book of Romans, but that day is not today. Um, My third idea was to preach through the book of Acts. And if you had asked me in April... Um, I would have said preaching through the book of Acts would have been a distant third possibility. I wasn't, you know, really feeling it at the time, but I read through the book of Acts a number of times, spring and summer, and I was just struck afresh with the relevance of this book for the church today. Really, the church in every age, but especially for the church in our day. And so we are going to take our time and make our way through this book. Sixty-some-odd weeks we'll be spending in here. Um... And I think the birth of the church and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth that we read about in the book of Acts is relevant in part uh, because it took place, all of that we read in the book of Acts took place in what we would call a pre-Christian culture, right? There was no sort of vestige of Christianity to fall back on. There was no familiarity with the gospel in the culture at large, and that is actually very similar to the post-Christian culture that we find ourselves in today. Uh, Gone are the days when everyone had sort of a basic understanding of the gospel, or at least maybe some kind of connection with a church of some type. 
I remember just a few years ago, I was talking with, uh, with one of the coaches of, uh, that coached my boys in, in volleyball, and as I was talking with him and you know, told him I was a pastor, he was like, apart from you, I don't know a single person who goes to church. And that is increasingly the world that we find ourselves in. That's the culture that we find ourselves in. So, you know, make the church cooler might have been an effective strategy in the 1980s and 1990s, but that's not going to work today. And it's not just that there's not the same remnant of Christianity that was present in past generations in our culture. The truth is that when a lot of people in our culture think about the church, they think about it with very negative connotations. I mean, lots of people think the Christian faith is bigoted and exclusive and repressive and homophobic, and you can add lots of things to that. And it can be discouraging or depressing to think about that, but we need to remember that the church was birthed in an environment and experienced tremendous growth in an environment that was hostile to the gospel. So I'm going to warn you up front, you're getting sort of a two-for-one sermon today. Um, we're going to look at the first five verses of the book of Acts, but before we get to those verses, I'm going to give you five reasons why it's important to study the book of Acts. There are other reasons for sure, but these are things that stood out to me in my reading of the book of Acts uh, this summer. And reason number one is to understand the nature and importance of the church. Now, if that you know, maybe elicits a bit of an eye roll from you, like really this is sort of the number one reason to study this book is to learn about the church. Um, That actually proves my point. The church doesn't look like much to the world, right? When the world looks at the church, they see sort of an ancient relic. I mean, what possible relevance could an institution have that was founded 2,000 years ago? Now, it's actually understandable when the world looks at the church that way. But lots of Christians, I think, have a deficient view of the church. Some Christians think, look, it's just them and Jesus, right? That's all that, what do they need the church for? Other Christians are consumers when it comes to the church. They basically want a concert and a TED Talk every week, and then they're happy. And if they don't happen to like the the band or the speaker at this one, they'll just find another one that they do like. The church, as God designed it, is so much more than that. The gathering, the regular gathering of God's people for worship and prayer and instruction and the Lord's Supper and fellowship is of vital importance. Now, At Crossroads, we value what happens here on Sunday morning. But when we read the book of Acts, we're reminded that the church gathered in each other's homes as well. There's a deep connection between these believers. They also met each other's practical needs. And I think we could summarize what we see in the book of Acts is that the church met together, they worshiped together, they prayed together, they ate together, they received instruction together, and they served together. They were on mission together. And if your view of church is that you show up at 9 o'clock sharp or 10 o'clock sharp and, you know, leave at 11 o'clock dull, you have the wrong view. And the book of Acts, studying it, will transform your view of the church. Second important reason for studying the book of Acts is to prevent missional 
drift. Now, missional drift is a term we usually associate with the business world. It's what happens when a company or institution drifts from its original vision or mission. And this is, you know, everywhere in the business world, right? Companies that start out saying, you know, our mission is to provide, you know, the best customer service you've ever had. And sometimes they just kind of drift from that, that falls to the wayside, and maybe that business fails. But sometimes those businesses that drift from their mission actually still succeed in a different way, but not meeting their mission. So Harvard University is one of those edu- educational institutions that most people know about. They've heard about Harvard. It's a prestigious school. Listen to the original mission statement for Harvard University. Everyone shall consider as the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. That was their original mission. Here's how their mission statement reads today. To educate the citizens and citizen leaders for our society. Well, you don't have to be a Harvard graduate to know that those two things are not the same, right? The mission has changed. And the truth is that almost every Ivy League school had the same beginning or same mission as Harvard had at the start. Yale University was started by conservative congregationalists. Princeton was started by the Presbyterians. Brown was was founded by devout Rhode Island Baptists. Dartmouth was founded by mission-minded New Hampshire evangelicals. None of the mission statements for those institutions line up with their original mission statement. They don't even resemble what they started out as. And I would just say that this is what can happen to churches as well. The thing that struck me most forcefully in reading and rereading the book of Acts was the centrality of mission. There's a lot of persecution that takes place in the book of Acts, but everywhere these believers went, they took the gospel with them. They were on mission. And we're going to come to it next week, but the key verse in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And there Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of of the earth. We'll look at that more in depth next week, but that is actually the flow of the book. That it starts out in Jerusalem with a small group of believers and ends up with the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And we have to remember this is the mission God gave us. We say as at Crossridge that the mission of Crossridge Church is to know Jesus and to make him known. If we ever drift from that mission, we are we have no business be in existence. Third reason for studying the book of Acts is to understand that success in ministry doesn't come from better techniques, but from the Holy Spirit. You know, the phenomenon of the early church is fascinating. Uh, Sometimes we will marvel at, you know, things like the way that Apple got its start, right? Started in Steve Jobs' garage, and it grew into this worldwide success story. And it, 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 the, the, the origin of, of Apple is sort of the stuff of, of legends. But the story of the church is an even more unlikely success story from a human perspective. 
Now, we have to remember, when the church began, it owned no buildings. They had no resources. The Jewish religion was well-established. Greco-Roman religions were everywhere. The company of believers, we read later in the book of Acts, was 120 people. That's it. So how did the church grow from 120 believers in Jerusalem to a worldwide phenomenon in such a short amount of time? Well, the answer to that question is the power of the Holy Spirit. The church was born when the Holy Spirit breathed out on a group of men. In Acts chapter 2, we read about it, and it spread like wildfire from that moment on. The presence and power of the Holy Spirit is everywhere in the book of Acts. There's a a great story in Acts chapter 19 that tells us what happens when the power of the Spirit is not there and you're just trying to do ministry by virtue of technique. There's a a story in Acts 19 about these seven sons of a man named Sceva who was a high priest at the time. And they uh, they wanted to to engage in in ministry and so they confronted this demon-possessed man and they commanded the demon to come out and the demon turned to them and said, look, I... I know who Jesus is, and I know who Paul is, but who are you? And he turned on them, gave them a beating. They ran out of the house naked. That's what it looks like when we try to do ministry apart from the power of the Spirit. It produces nothing. There's no power. Fourth reason for studying the book of Acts is to learn how to engage culture without embracing it. Now, culture is a powerful force. But I think most of us don't realize just how shaped we are by the culture that we live in. Um, I know it's always a bad idea for a pastor to, you know, make a comment about women's fashion and that sort of thing. But, but let me just take an example from that, okay? Bit of an expert on that. Um, and don't worry, this is not like a, you know, yoga pants rant or anything like that. But a couple of years back, I noticed a woman who uh, had her shirt tucked into her, into her pants like this. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like a full tuck. It was just this kind of partial tuck. And I was like, should I say something to her? Like, has she, does she know that? Or what, what exactly is going on? But within a few weeks, it seemed like every woman I knew was tucking their shirt into their pants like this. So I, I don't know exactly how that happens. Like, is there an announcement that gets made somewhere? Or are, are y'all in on a text thread that I don't get? It says, hey, start doing the half-tuck thing. Now, actually, I know that's not how it works. The way it works is someone does this, and then someone else sees it and says, oh, that looks cool, and a few people do it, and pretty soon everyone thinks that's just normal. That is how culture works. It has that kind of power. We don't even think about it, where we got that idea or why we think this is the way it is. We just adapt and we often pick up these things from culture. Now, how you tuck your pants or your shirt into your pants is kind of an innocuous thing, but I would say the culture shapes us in all sorts of ways we're not even aware of and we need to understand that. We need to engage culture, but not embrace it. Now, the Apostle Paul understood this. He's often held up as a model of how to engage the culture. 
his visit to the city of Athens that we read about. And he observes all the idols that are there and then addresses the people is kind of a model of cultural engagement. And, and it is, it's effective. But I think sometimes what gets forgotten in all the talk about cultural engagement is that Paul was actually willing to confront the errors in the culture. So in Acts 17, we read this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Lots of people who talk about cultural engagement stop right there. But notice what Paul went on to say. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, as Paul spoke to the, to the people in the city of Athens, he acknowledged the universality of their religious impulses, that everyone is a worshiper by nature. And so he begins there. But we should also notice he doesn't shy away from telling them that they were wrong when it came to their conception about God. And I think as Christians, we need to learn to do the same thing. Right? We need to learn to discern what is behind some of the values and the practices of our culture. I mean, there, there's no doubt in my mind that there are lots of individuals caught up in the confusion of the current sexual revolution because they're longing for acceptance and belonging, and we need to know that. But we also have to be willing to say you're never going to find what you're searching for or what you're looking for by rebelling against your creator. So we need to engage the culture but not embrace it and that leads to a fifth reason for studying the book of acts and that is to be reminded that faithful gospel proclamation is met with a variety of responses i've already mentioned the phenomenon of the early church after peter preaches his sermon on the day of pentecost we read this so those who received his words were baptized and there were added that day about three thousand souls Now, we, we read that and we marvel. I mean, 3,000 people in one day. But actually, the growth of the church was not a one-time event. Read through the book of Acts, and you find it's constantly growing and multiplying. So later in Acts 2, it says, And the Lord had added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In Acts, chip, Acts chapter 6, we read, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Faith. We read that kind of thing all through the book of Acts. It's just this growth that is happening, multiplying, taking place. And the book of Acts records lots of favorable responses to the gospel. Wealthy women, prison guards, centurions, foreign dignitaries, synagogue rulers, and even those who persecuted the church get converted. Lots of individuals, households, and even cities hear the preaching of the gospel and respond with repentance and faith. And that should encourage us. But we should also remember that not everyone responded favorably. The book of Acts also tells us that those who went about proclaiming the gospel also experienced opposition and imprisonment and slander and stoning and in more than one case, martyrdom. 
Acts chapter 19 tells us that when Paul finished preaching his sermon in the city of Ephesus, a riot started in the city. And I think we just need to be reminded of this because sometimes Christians have thought, look, if we just make our presentation of the gospel more winsome, if we do it kind of in the right way, it's going to diffuse all of that opposition. That is simply not true. Here's what Paul writes elsewhere. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to to life. And what Paul is saying is that as we go about sharing this message, this good news, for some people, that is the smell of life. But to others, it's the stench of death. They want nothing to do with it. And that's what we should expect. So those are some of the reasons we ought to study this great book. I I want to kind of shift now, and I want to focus our attention on the way the book of Acts begins. Uh, Let me read for you the first five verses in the book of Acts. Here's what it says there. Just realized I didn't bring my glasses up. (laughs) It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So very quickly, I want to highlight three things that we learn from those verses. The first one is that we shouldn't think the work of Jesus ended with his death and resurrection. Verse 1 begins by saying, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, there's a lot to unpack from that very uh, straightforward verse. Many of you know this already, but just in case you didn't know, the book of Acts is a sequel of sorts. Right? This is book 2. The writer of the book of Acts was Luke, and the first book that he's referring to is what we refer to as the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke begins like this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke addressed both of these writings to someone named Theophilus. Most scholars think he's probably a high-ranking Roman official. That's why he is designated most excellent Theophilus. But we ought to see Luke acts as sort of a two-part book or package. They go together. But but notice what else Luke says here. He says that that his first book dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And that word began is significant. If the gospel of Luke was about all that Jesus began to do and teach, what is the book of Acts about? The short answer is that it's about all that Jesus continued to do and teach. Again, verse 1 says, 
in my first book, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then in verse 2, he says, Until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to his apostles whom he had chosen. So, so Luke is saying, look, the, the, the gospel that I wrote, that account that I wrote, begins with Jesus' birth, and it goes until the day he was taken up, till Jesus ascended into heaven. And Luke's going to do a brief recap of that in chapter 1. But if Luke was about all that Jesus did until he was taken up, Acts is about all that Jesus did after he was taken up. And two things are worthy uh, of note in light of that. The, the first is that we ought to think of Luke and Acts the right way. Uh, we shouldn't think that the, that the gospel of Luke is the story of Jesus from his birth through his death and resurrection and ascension, and that the book of Acts is about the history of the church from its birth until it spreads to the ends of the earth. That's not actually right. That's not actually the distinction between the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. The distinction between the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is that one describes the earthly ministry of Jesus and the other describes the heavenly ministry of Jesus. Again, look again at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The most significant name in verse 1 is not Theophilus, it is Jesus. I know that's always the answer, the right answer in church. But it's important that we actually reflect on this. Now, we're about to embark on a study of the book of Acts. The traditional name or title for this book, you can look at your Bibles and you'll see it there. Since the second century, the traditional title has been the Acts of the Apostles. And you can understand why, right? The apostles appear to take center stage. But that title is actually a bit of a misnomer. Because the book of Acts is not ultimately about what the early apostles did. But about what Jesus did through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we just think of it as the acts of the apostles, we also omit the work of the Holy Spirit. But it was actually only by the power of the Spirit they were able to accomplish anything. So John Stott suggested this admittedly cumbersome title for this book. He said, The Continuing Words of De uh, and Deeds of Jesus by His Spirit through His Apostles. Now, in our study, we're just going to refer to this as we're doing a study of the book of Acts. But I think it's helpful just to bear that in mind whenever we think about this book. What are we actually studying? Well, we are studying the continued deeds and words of Jesus. So we shouldn't think the work of Jesus ended with his death and resurrection. The second thing of note is that we shouldn't think we can separate the ministry of Jesus from the message of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Subtitle for this series is Mission and Message. And the reason for that is because we ought to hold these two things together. Look again at verse 1. I know we're spending a lot of time there, but look again what it says. In the first book, O Theophilus, there I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So when Luke wants to summarize what his gospel was about, he says it was about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. 
in our minds, we, we often separate those two activities. Like, you know, doing, the doing is one thing and the teaching is something altogether different. It's not actually how we should think about it. It's not how Jesus did it. Listen to the way the Gospel of Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry. It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction among the people. Preaching, teaching, and healing. And you find that threefold description of Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospels. And you can see the emphasis on teaching in our passage as well. Look now at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection. What did he do during that time? Well, he taught them about the kingdom of God. It's that important. And I'm emphasizing the teaching part because, again, I think the name of this book predisposes us to think it's only about doing. It's the Acts of the Apostles. But what struck me as I read through Acts a few times was how much speaking or teaching is contained in here. There are no less than 19 significant speeches that are recorded for us in the book of Acts. There are eight speeches or sermons by Peter in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 10, 11, and 15. There are lengthy speeches from Stephen in chapter 7 and James in chapter 15. Nine of Paul's speeches are recorded for us. Five sermons and four defense speeches that he made before various officials. 25% of the book of Acts is simply made up of the speeches that are Recorded, And when you add to that all the references to teaching and testifying and proclaiming and bearing witness, it's an important part of this. We don't want to separate the ministry or the mission from the message. So yes, we ought to minister to people in need. We ought to meet practical needs. But ministry is incomplete if we don't teach people about Jesus. I mean, this was the commission Jesus gave his disciples. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm always with you to the end of the age. He says the same thing here in chapter 1. Again, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. To witnesses, to bear testimony about. So we ought to keep these things together. You know, I had the, the chance a couple weeks ago to spend a day at uh, Wagner Hills Farm in Fort Langley. And if you're not familiar with that ministry, uh, Wagner Hills is a one-year recovery program for those dealing with various addictions. It's a working farm. Residents live and work there. And they also take classes. And they learn about the person and work of Jesus. I got to know one of the graduates from that program who's now on staff. And I love the holistic approach that they take. They're not just helping people put drugs and alcohol behind them. As important as that is, they're also helping people understand how much God loves them and what Jesus has done for them. 
So we shouldn't think the work of Jesus ended with his death and resurrection. He's still working. We shouldn't think we can separate the ministry of Jesus from the message of Jesus. Those things belong together. And then thirdly, we shouldn't think we can accomplish anything of significance without the Holy Spirit. And this is the point of what Jesus tells his disciples in verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's interesting. Jesus tells them to wait, isn't it? I mean, he's just spent 40 days teaching them. But he doesn't say, look, I've taught you. Now you're commissioned. Go. He tells them to wait for the promise of the Father because he knows without the power of the Spirit, their activity will accomplish nothing. And when he's referring to the promise of the Father, he's referring to the Holy Spirit, the, the, the promise that God made throughout through some of the Old Testament prophets. Like in Ezekiel 36, we read, And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Or through the prophet Joel, he says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And Jesus spoke about the coming of the Spirit repeatedly throughout his, before his death. And we looked at this in some depth in our series in the Gospel of John. And there Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Or again, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now when the Spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. What Jesus wanted his disciples to understand is that they had no power. They would have no power until the Holy Spirit came. And that is every bit as true for us today. That ministry activities that we engage in, if they are not done in the power of the Spirit, they will amount to nothing. The lives will not be transformed. So I think it's important for us just as we think about who we are as a church, as Crossridge Church, as we have this mission to know Jesus and to make him known that we want to do that, not based on our, our techniques, not based on our skill, but based on the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your presence that is with us. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that uh, you have called us, you have commissioned us to be your witnesses. And we pray, we know we fail at that many times. We pray though we would be effective at that in our neighborhoods, in our city, uh, in our world. And we pray to give us wisdom to know how to navigate some of the things around us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.